Chapter Fourteen of the Moon Maid by Edgar Rice Burroughs. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Thomas Copeland. Chapter Fourteen: The Barzoom. The city was already in flames in many places, and though the people fought valiantly to extinguish them, it seemed to me that they but spread the more rapidly with each succeeding minute. And then, as suddenly as it had commenced, the bombardment ceased. Nyla and I crossed over to the outer edge of the terrace to see if we could note any new movement by the enemy, nor did we have long to wait. We saw a hundred ladders, raised as if by magic, toward the lowest terrace, which rose but a bare two hundred feet above the base of the city. The men who carried the ladders were not visible to us when they came close to the base of the wall, but I guessed from the distant glimpses that I caught of the ladders as they were brushed forward by running men, that here again Orthus' earthly knowledge and experience had come to the assistance of the Kalkars, for I was sure that only some form of extension ladder could be successfully used to reach even the lowest terrace. When I saw their intention, I ran quickly down into the palace and out upon the terrace before the gates, where the remainder of the guard was stationed, and there I told them what was happening, and urged them to hasten the people to the lowest terrace to repulse the enemy before they had secured a foothold upon the city. Then I returned to Naila, and together we watched the outcome of the struggle. But almost from the first I realized that Lathe was doomed, for before any of her defenders could reach the spot, fully a thousand Kalkars had clambered to the terrace, and there they held their own while other thousands ascended in safety to the city. We saw the defenders rush forth to attack them, and for a moment, so impetuous was their charge, I thought that I had been wrong, and that the Kalkars might yet be driven from Lathe. Fighting upon the lower outer terrace far beneath us was a surging mass of shouting warriors. The Kalkars were falling back before the impetuous onslaught of the Lathians. They have not the blood in their veins, whispered Naila, clinging tightly to my arm. One noble is worth ten of them. Watch them. Already they are fleeing. And so it seemed, and the rout of the Kalkars appeared almost assured, as score upon score of them were hurled over the edge of the terrace to fall mangled and bleeding upon the ground, hundreds of feet below. But suddenly a new force seemed to be injected into the strife. I saw a stream of Kalkars emerging above the edge of the lower terrace, new men clambering up the ladders from the plateau below, and as they came, they shouted something which I could not understand, but the other Kalkars seemed to take heart and made once more the semblance of a stand against the noble Lathians, and I saw one, the leader of the newcomers, force his way into the battling throng, and then I saw him raise his hand above his head and hurl something into the midst of the compact ranks of the Lathians. Instantly there was a terrific explosion and a great bloody gap lay upon the terrace, where an instant before a hundred of the flower of the fighting men of Lathe had been so gloriously defending their city and their honour. Grenades! I exclaimed. Hand grenades! What is it, Julian? What is it that they are doing down there? cried Naila. They are murdering my people. Yes, Naila, they are murdering your people, and well may Vana curse the day that earthmen set foot upon your world. I do not understand, Julian, she said. This is the work of Orthus, I said, who has brought from earth the knowledge of diabolical engines of destruction. 
he first shelled the city with what must have been nothing more than crude mortars for it is impossible that he has had the time to construct the machinery to build any but the simplest of guns now his troops are hurling hand grenades among our men there is no chance Naila, for the lathians to successfully pit their primitive weapons against the modern agents of destruction which orthus has brought to bear against them lathe must surrender or be destroyed Naila laid her head upon my shoulder and wept softly julian she said at last this is the end then take me to the jemadov my mother please and then you must go and make your peace with your fellow earthman it is not right that you a stranger who have done so much for me should fall with me and lathe the only peace i can make with orthus Naila, i replied is the peace of death orthus and i may not live together again in the same world she was crying very softly sobbing upon my shoulder and i put my arm about her in an effort to quiet her i have brought you only suffering and danger and now death julian she said when you deserve naught but happiness and peace i suddenly felt very strange and my heart behaved wretchedly so that when i attempted to speak it pounded so that i could say nothing and my knees shook beneath me what had come over me could it be possible that already orthus had loosed his poison gas then at last i managed to gather myself together Naila, i said i do not fear death if you must die and i do not seek happiness except with you she looked up suddenly her great tear-dimmed eyes wide and gazing deep into mine you mean julian you mean i mean Naila, that i love you I though I must have stumbled through the words in a most ridiculous manner, so frightened was I. Ah, Julian, she sighed, and put her arms about my neck. And you, Nyla, I exclaimed incredulously as I crushed her to me, can it be that you return my love? I have loved you always, she replied, from the very first almost, way back when we were prisoners together in the Novans village. You earthmen must be very blind, my Julian. A Lathian would have known it at once, for it seemed to me that upon a dozen occasions I almost avowed my love openly to you. Alas, Naila, I must have been very blind, for I had not guessed until this minute that you loved me. Now, she said, I do not care what happens. We have one another, and if we die together, doubtless we shall live together in a new incarnation i hope so i said but i should much rather be sure of it than live together in this and i too julian but that is impossible we were walking now through the corridors of the palace toward the chamber occupied by her mother but we did not find her there and Naila became apprehensive as to her safety hurriedly we searched through other chambers of the palace until at last we came to the little audience chamber in which sagroth had been slain and as we threw open the door i saw a sight that i tried to hide from Naila's eyes as i drew her around in an effort to force her back into the corridor possibly she guessed what impelled my action for she shook her head and murmured now julia whatever it is i must see it and then she pushed her way gently past me and we stood together upon the threshold looking at the harrowing sight 
which the interior of the room displayed. There were the bodies of the assassins Sagroth and I had slain, and the dead Jemadar, too, precisely as he had fallen, while across his breast lay the body of Naila's mother, a dagger self-thrust through her heart. For just a moment Naila stood there looking at them in silence, as though in prayer, and then she turned wearily away and left the chamber, closing the door behind her. We walked on in silence for some time, ascending the stairway back to the upper terrace. Upon the inner side the flames were spreading throughout the city, roaring like a mighty furnace and vomiting up great clouds of smoke, for though the Lathian terraces are supported by tremendous arches of masonry, yet there is much wood used in the interior construction of the buildings, but the hangings and the furniture are all inflammable. We had no chance to save the city said Naila with a sigh. Our people, called from their normal duties by the false Kota, were leaderless. The firefighters, instead of being at their posts, were seeking the life of their Jemadar. Unhappy day! Unhappy day! You think they could have stopped the fire? I asked. The little ponds, the rivulets, the waterfalls, the great public baths, and the tiny lakes that you see upon every terrace, were all built with fire protection in mind. It is easy to divert their waters and flood any tier of buildings. Had my people been at their posts, this at least could not have happened. As we stood watching the flames, we suddenly saw people emerging in great numbers upon several of the lower terraces. They were evidently in terrified flight, and then others appeared upon terraces above them. Kalkars who hurled hand grenades amongst the Lathians beneath them. Men, women, and children ran hither and thither, shrieking and crying and seeking for shelter, but from the buildings behind them, rushing them outward upon the terraces, came other cowcards with hand grenades. The fires hemmed the people of lathe upon either side, and the Kalkars attacked them from the rear and from above. The weaker fell and were trodden to death, and I saw scores fall upon their own lances, or drive daggers into the hearts of their loved ones. The massacre spread rapidly around the circumference of the city, and the Kalkars drove the people from the upper terraces downward between the raging fires, which were increasing until the mouth of the great crater was filled with roaring flames and smoke. In the occasional gaps, we could catch glimpses of the Holocaust beneath us. A sudden current of air rising from the crater lifted the smoke pall high for a moment, revealing the entire circumference of the crater, the edge of which was crowded with Lathians. And then I saw a warrior from the opposite side leap upon the surrounding wall that bordered the lower terrace at the edge of the yawning crater. He turned and called aloud some message to his fellows, and then, wheeling, threw his arms above his head and leaped outward into the yawning, bottomless abyss. Instantly the others seemed to be inoculated with the infection of his mad act. A dozen men leaped to the wall and dove head foremost into the crater. The thing spread slowly at first, and then with the rapidity of a prairie fire it ran around the entire circle of the city. Women hurled their children in and then leaped after them. The multitude fought one with another for a place upon the wall from which they might cast themselves to death. It was a terrible an awe-inspiring sight. Noila covered her eyes with her hands. My poor people, she cried. 
my poor people. And far below her, by the thousands now, they were hurling themselves into eternity, while above them the screaming Kalkars hurled hand grenades among them and drove the remaining inhabitants of Lathe terrace by terrace down toward the crater's rim. Noila turned away. Come, Julian, she said. I cannot look, I cannot look. And together we walked across the terrace to the outer side of the city. Almost directly beneath us upon the next terrace was a palace gate, and as we reached a point where we could see it, I was horrified to see that the Kalkars had made their way up the outer terraces to the very palace walls. The Jemadar's guard was standing there ready to defend the palace against the invaders. The great stone gates would have held indefinitely against spears and swords, but even the guardsmen must have guessed that their doom was already sealed, and that these gates, that had stood for ages, an ample protection to the Jemadars of Lathe, were about to fall, as the Kalkars halted fifty yards away, and from their ranks a single individual stepped forth a few paces. As my eyes alighted upon him, I seized Nyla's arm. Orthus! I cried. It is Orthus! At the same instant, the man's eyes rose above the gates and fell upon us. A nasty leer curled his lips as he recognized us. I come to claim my bride, he cried in a voice that reached us easily, and to balance my account with you at last. And he pointed a finger at me. In his right hand he held a large cylindrical object, and as he ceased speaking he hurled it at the gates precisely as a baseball pitcher pitches a swift ball. The missile struck squarely at the bottom of the gates. There was a terrific explosion, and the great stone portals crumbled, shattered into a thousand fragments. The last defense of the Empress of Lathe had fallen, and with it there went down in bloody death at least half the remaining members of her loyal guard. Instantly the Kalkars rushed forward, hurling hand grenades among the survivors of the guard. Noela turned toward me and put her arms about my neck. Kiss me once more, Julian, she said, and then the dagger. Never, never, Noela, I cried, I cannot do it. But I can, she exclaimed, and drew her own from its sheath at her hip. I seized her wrist. Not that, Noela, I cried, there must be some other way. And then there came to me a mad inspiration. The wings, I cried. Where are they kept? The last of your people have been destroyed. Duty no longer holds you here. Let us escape, even if it is only to frustrate Orthus' plans and deny him the satisfaction of witnessing our death. But where can we go? she asked. We may at least choose our own manner of death, I replied, far from lathe and far from the eyes of an enemy who would gloat over our undoing. You're right, Julia. We still have a little time for I doubt if Orthus or his Kalkars can quickly find the stairway leading to this terrace. And then she led me quickly to one of the many towers that rise above the palace. Entering it, we ascended a spiral staircase to a large chamber at the summit of the tower. Here were kept the imperial wings. I fastened Nyla's to her, and she helped me with mine. And then, from the pinnacle of the tower, we arose above the burning city of Lathe, and flew rapidly toward the distant lowlands and the sea. 
it was in my mind to search out if possible the location of the parsoon for i still entertained the mad hope that my companions yet lived if i did why not they the heat above the city was almost unendurable and the smoke suffocating yet we passed through it so that almost immediately we were hidden from the view of that portion of the palace from which we had arisen with the result that when Orthus and his Kalkars finally found their way to the upper terrace, as I have no doubt they did, we had disappeared, whither they could not know. We flew and drifted with the wind across the mountainous country toward the plains and the sea, it being my intention, upon reaching the latter, to follow the coastline until I came to a river marked by an island at his mouth. From that point I knew that I could reach the spot where the Barsoom had landed, our long flight must have covered a considerable period of time since it was necessary for us to alight and rest many times and to search for food we met fortunately with no mishaps and upon the several occasions when we were discovered by roving bands of vagas we were able to soar far aloft and escape them easily we came at length however to the sea the coast of which i followed to the left but though we passed the mouths of many rivers I discovered none that precisely answered the description of that which I sought. It was borne in upon me, at last, that our quest was futile, but where we were to find a haven of safety neither of us could guess. The gas in our bags was losing its buoyancy, and we had no means wherewith to replenish it. It would still maintain us for a short time, but how long neither of us knew, other than that it had not nearly the buoyancy that it originally possessed. Off the coast we had seen islands almost continuously, and I suggested to Nyla that we try to discover one upon which grew the fruits and nuts and vegetables necessary for our subsistence, and where we might also have a constant supply of fresh water. I discovered that Nyla knew little about these islands, practically nothing in fact, not even as to whether they were inhabited. But we determined to explore one, and to this end, we selected an island of considerable extent that lay about ten miles offshore. We reached it without difficulty and circled slowly above it, scrutinizing its entire area carefully. About half of it was quite hilly, but the balance was rolling and comparatively level. We discovered three streams and two small lakes upon it, and an almost riotous profusion of vegetable growth, but nowhere did we discern the slightest indication that it was inhabited and so at last feeling secure we made our landing upon the plain close to the beach it was a beautiful spot a veritable garden of eden where we too might have passed the remainder of our lives in peace and security for though we later explored it carefully we found not the slightest evidence that it had ever known the foot of man together we built a snug shelter against the storms together we hunted for food and during our long periods of idleness we lay upon the soft sward beside the beach and to pass the time away i taught nyla my own language it was a lazy indolent happy life that we spent upon this enchanted isle and yet though we were happy in our love each of us felt the futility of our existence where our lives must be spent in useless idleness we had, however, given up definitely hope for any other form of existence, and thus we were lying one time, as was our wont after eating, stretched in luxurious ease upon our backs, 
on the soft lunar grasses, I with my eyes closed, when Nyla suddenly grasped me by the arm. Julian, she cried, what is it? Look! I opened my eyes to find her sitting up and gazing into the sky toward the mainland, a slim forefinger indicating the direction of the object that had attracted her attention and aroused her surprised interest. As my eyes rested upon the thing her pointing finger indicated, I leaped to my feet with an exclamation of incredulity, for there, sailing parallel with the coast at an altitude of not more than a thousand feet, was a ship, the lines of which I knew as I had known my mother's face. It was the Barzoom. Grasping Naila by the arm, I dragged her to her feet. Come, quick, Naila, I cried, and urged her rapidly toward our hut, where we had stored the wings and the gas bags, which we had never thought to use again, yet protected carefully, though why we knew not. There was still gas in the bags, enough to support us in the air with the existence of our wings, but to fly thus for long distances would have been most fatiguing, and there was even a question as to whether we could cross the ten miles of sea that lay between us and the mainland. Yet I was determined to attempt it. Hastily we donned the wings and bags, and rising together flapped slowly in the direction of the mainland. The Barsoom was cruising slowly along a line that would cross ours before we could reach the shore, but I hoped that they would sight us and investigate. We flew as rapidly as I dared, for I could take no chances upon exhausting Naila, knowing that it would be absolutely impossible for me to support her weight and my own with our depleted gas bags. There was no way in which I could signal to the Barsoom we must simply fly toward her. That was the best that we could do, and finally, try though we would, I realized that we should be too late to intercept her, and that unless they saw us and changed their course, we should not come close enough to hail them. To see my friends passing so near, and yet to be unable to apprise them of my presence, filled me with melancholy. Not one of the many vicissitudes and dangers through which I had passed since I left Earth depressed me more than the sight of the Barsoom forging slowly past us without speaking. I saw her change her course then and move inland still further from us, and I could not but dwell upon our unhappy condition, since now we might never again be able to reach the safety of our island, there being even a question as to whether the gas bags would support us to the mainland. They did, however, and there we alighted and rested while the Barsoom sailed out of sight toward the mountains. I shall not give it up, Naila, I cried. I am going to follow the Barsoom until we find it, or until we die in the attempt. I doubt if we can reach the island again, but we can make short flights here on land, and by so doing we may overtake my ship and my companions. After resting for a short time, we arose again, and when we were above the trees I saw the Barsoom far in the distance and again it was circling, this time toward the left. So we altered our course and flew after it. But presently we realized that it was making a great circle, and hope renewed within our breasts, giving us the strength to fly on and on, though we were forced to come down often for brief rests. As we neared the ship, we saw that the circles were growing smaller, but it was not until we were within about three miles of her that I realized that she was circling the mouth of a great crater. 
the walls of which rose several hundred feet above the surrounding country. We had been forced to land again to rest, when there flashed upon my mind a sudden realization of the purpose of the maneuvers of the Barzoom. She was investigating the crater, preparatory to an attempt to pass through it into outer space and seek to return to earth again. As this thought impinged upon my brain, a wave of almost hopeless horror overwhelmed me, as I thought of being definitely left forever by my companions, and that by but a few brief minutes Naila was to be robbed of life and happiness and peace, for at that instant the hull of the Barsoom dropped beneath the rim of the crater and disappeared from our view. Rising quickly with Naila, I flew as rapidly as my tired muscles and exhausted gas bag would permit toward the rim of the crater. In my heart of hearts I knew that I should be too late, for once they had decided to make the attempt, the ship would drop like a plummet into the depths, and by the time I reached the mouth of the abyss, it would be lost to my view forever. And yet I struggled on, my lungs almost bursting from the exertion of my mad efforts toward speed, Naila trailed far behind, for if either of us could reach the Barsoom in time, we should both be saved, and I could fly faster than Naila. Otherwise, I should never have separated myself from her by so much as a hundred yards. Though my lungs were pumping like bellows, I ventured to say that my heart stood still for several seconds before I topped the crater's rim. At the same instant that I expected the last vestige of my hopes to be dashed to pieces, irrevocably and forever, I crossed the rim and beheld the Barsoom not twenty feet below me, just over the edge of the abyss, and upon her deck stood West and Jay and Norton. As I came into view directly above them, West whipped out his revolver and leveled it at me, but the instant that his finger pressed the trigger, Norton sprang forward and struck his hand aside. My God, sir, I heard the boy cried, it is the captain. And then... They all recognized me, and an instant later I almost collapsed as I fell to the deck of my beloved ship. My first thought was of Naila, and at my direction the Barsoom rose swiftly and moved to meet her. Um, great Scott, cried my guest, leaping to his feet and looking out of the stateroom window. I had no idea that I had kept you up all night. Here we are in Paris already. But the rest of your story, I cried. You have not finished it, I know. Last night, as you were watching them celebrating in the blue room, you made a remark which led me to believe that some terrible calamity threatened the world. It does, he said, and that was what I meant to tell you about, but this story of the third incarnation, of which I am conscious, was necessary to an understanding of how the great catastrophe overwhelmed the people of the earth. But did you reach earth again? I demanded. Yes, he said, in the year 2036. I had been ten years within Vana, but did not know whether it was ten months or a century until we landed upon Earth. He smiled then. You notice that I still say I. It is sometimes difficult for me to recall which incarnation I am in. Perhaps it will be clearer to you if I say Julian V returned to Earth in 2036, and in the same year... His son, Julian the Sixth was born to his wife, Naila the Moon Maid. But how could he return to Earth in the disabled Barsoom? Ah, 
he said. That raises a point that was of great interest to Julian V. After he regained the Barsoom, naturally one of the first questions he asked was as to the condition of the ship and their intentions. And when he learned that they had in reality been intending to pass through the crater toward the earth, he questioned them further and discovered that it was the young Ensign Norton who had repaired the engine, having been able to do it by information that he had gleaned from Orthus after winning the latter's friendship. Thus was explained the intimacy between the two which Julian V had so deplored, but which he now saw the young Norton had encouraged for a patriotic purpose. We are docked now, and I must be going. Thank you for your hospitality and for your generous interest, and he held out his hand toward me. But the story of Julian the Ninth, I insisted, am I never to hear that? If we meet again, yes, he promised with a smile. I shall hold you to it, I told him. If we meet again, he repeated, and departed, closing the stateroom door after him. End of chapter 14 End of The Moon Maid by Edgar Rice Burroughs Recording by Thomas Copeland